This episode is brought to you by Fooley Gemstones. The big diamonds were spectacular, but you have to be a certain kind of person with a certain kind of life to be able to sort of incorporate those kind of pieces, right? They're, they're sort of larger than life pieces. She put it on her hand and she looked at her hand and she said, look at my short, fat little fingers now. I knew right away that I'd never met her, but I knew right away then I liked her. I'm Carol Holton, the voice of jewellery. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm an author and broadcaster and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas and forgotten histories. So join me as I tell sparkly tales and meet all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Today we're going to discuss one of Hollywood's legendary movie stars. Born in 1932, Elizabeth Taylor had a couple of Academy Awards, BAFTAs and four Golden Globes. She was the first million-dollar Hollywood star who was acknowledged as the world's most beautiful woman. Her beauty was accentuated by wide violet-coloured eyes and fabulous jewellery, mostly diamonds. In midlife, she pivoted into humanitarian work, particularly for HIV-AIDS research and fundraising. And by the time she died, she had amassed one of the finest jewellery collections in the world, which was sold at Christie's in 2011 as the most valuable auction in history, raising $116 million. So we're going to talk about Elizabeth Taylor's extraordinary life in jewels. I'm welcoming Sally Morrison, who's with the De Beers Group, who worked with Elizabeth Taylor for over 30 years. She worked with her on Amphar and on the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation special projects on Elizabeth Taylor's fragrance line and company and knew her very well and often was privy to her jewellery buying sessions and trying on sessions. So thank you very much for joining us today, Sally. Thanks for inviting me on. It's great to see you again. We saw each other um, in Paris over Couture. So we had a little chat about Elizabeth Taylor then and I thought, well, here is somebody who knew her and her jewellery so well that it was fantastic to continue the conversation on the podcast. Sally, what was it like to be around somebody that famous who had that star power? It was extraordinary, right? Um, at the beginning, when I first met her, um, I was very young. Um, I was in my you know, early 20s. And I was sent out when I first worked at AMFAR, the American Foundation for AIDS Research, to, to meet her actually to record a public service amount announcement. And I think that the sort of dominating emotion was terror. Um, she was one of those people who was so much larger than life. I had not met or worked with celebrities before. And just she was one of those people, I think, that when she walked into the room, you really felt that sort of vibrating star power. Everybody stopped talking. When she got to the parking lot, people would say, she's here. So I think it was it was kind of overwhelming as a young, inexperienced person to deal with that kind of fame. And I And I think we're talking about fame on a level that honestly doesn't exist very much. And that's something coming from you because you've met every famous person in well, the world. Well, that's, <laughs> that's not quite true. I've, I've met quite a lot of people who are very, very prominent. But, but I also think it's, it's a function, Carol, of the times. I think when I met her in the 80s, that sort of global wattage was a very, very rare but special thing. And I can't think since then of many people who have it when they walk in a room. Madonna, Beyonce, you know, there just aren't many people in, in the world that have that kind of excitement around them. So she had that. So it was kind of overwhelming. Did you go on trips with her? I went on a lot of trips, actually, um, mostly AIDS trips, um, for either for AIDS conferences or, or, or for her to make speeches or in certain instances like big AIDS benefits. And actually, the first trip I went on that I was asked to go on with her, which was must have been 86, 87, um, Elizabeth was invited by the royal family of Thailand to come to their first AIDS benefit. So I went to Los Angeles and we all flew 
to Thailand together. And it was extraordinary. I mean, first of all, moving her around it was like moving a small country, right? So there were about 10 or 12 of us on the trip, hairdresser, Jose Hebert, um, a makeup person, someone to look after the luggage, but then just the luggage, you know, the the luggage had its own van and somebody's job was to count off the 30 or 40 pieces of luggage as they came off the conveyor and then that went to the hotel separately. And of course we were moving around. So this happened in multiple locations. But the funny thing about that was um, after the trip, somebody said to me, oh, Bangkok, it must have been so terrible, you know, the traffic and this and that. And I was just astonished. And I said, I, I didn't see any traffic. There was no traffic in Bangkok. And actually, the reason for that was the royal family had arranged for the military to close roads and intersections when she went out. So when we went out shopping to look at jewelry, etc., we didn't see any traffic because they literally blockaded the route that she, that all her cars were going on. And it was so it was, I don't know, it was like being part of a, a royal retinue, right? Old school. It was exciting. Did she travel with her jewelry? So part of these great luggages, did any of that contain jewelry? She had a special traveling jewelry box for sure. And it sort of had a handle on the top and it was carried by security or or carried by an assistant or whatever. And in fact, there's a very, very funny story about when she and Richard were basically, you know, in the 60s, living on trains, more or less. They had special trains that took them places with the dogs and the children and the nannies and all that. And one time they went into, I think, the Palace Hotel in Stad and were, I think, getting very tipsy on Bloody Marys. And suddenly Elizabeth said, Richard, where's the jewellery? And in fact, he'd left that box on the station platform and they had to go screaming back and it was still there. She travelled with real jewellery. She wore her own jewellery. She was not somebody who used fakes. So real jewellery went on trips and she would select obviously different things. It's not like everything went everywhere. But I think for her, part of the pleasure of collecting and having was the actual wearing and using you know these weren't things that just lived in a safe and were sort of special and you visited them they were things that you actually incorporated into your life and I think that's where you know she was perhaps different from a lot of other people and it was it was something to be used every day I mean she wore her crop nearly all the time, including in bed. The crop diamond, the 33.19 carat diamond. Yeah, she wore it all the time. And, and if she wasn't wearing anything else and we'd meet her and maybe she was in the bedroom, she would nearly always be wearing it. And she was also, I think, joyous and democratic in the way she used her jewellery. I mean, one time she met my parents when we were going to actually an AIDS benefit in Florence, Italy, and my parents came to meet her in the lobby and she, you know, said hello to them and said to my mom, oh, I think you want to see this and sort of took off her ring and thrust this, you know, the crop of my mom to, to, to see and try on and all that. And very often she would like, you know, blow on it and, and you know, rub it off on a, on, a, on a sweater before she gave it to somebody. She wasn't precious about it, I guess is what I'm saying. It was something to, to sort of just that was incorporated into her life and she was generous about it. And I, and I think, again, that's quite special, right? Mm. It's, mm. it's an unusual kind of quality. And so when you went with her to Bangkok, did you go shopping with her? Did you buy anything with her? We very much went shopping. And it was my first taste of what I think of as power shopping, where she would be shopping, an enormous array of things would be purchased. Somebody would call to the business manager in the States to say, this is just going on the American Express. We need to make sure they're ready for it. And then she would go ahead to the next store to look at the next stuff and someone would be left behind to pay the bill and make sure things were wrapped up and this and that. And this would go on for hours and hours and hours. I remember she bought on that trip to Bangkok a, just an extraordinary, invisibly set pin in the shape of a, like a huge, huge sapphire rose, which was just fantastic. I remember very well that this piece, because she said, you know, you should buy something while you're here because the coloured stones and sapphires in particular are incredible in Bangkok and you're going to get a great deal. And I'm like, I don't have any money to buy jewellery. And I was not a jewellery person. I, I really wasn't. And she said, here's the thing. Every collection begins with something. You don't obviously start with this $30,000 pin, but get something here because that's the way collections start. And I bought on that trip two one carat, quite pale blue sapphires, and they were $100 each. And that was a lot of money to me at that time. But that was the first time I can remember buying jewellery for myself ever. 
and I obviously had it set into earrings and it became a piece of jewelry. But I just remember looking at those stones and thinking, you know, she's probably right. You just start. And her collection, it was quite unusual, I think, for a jewelry collection in that there was no theme. You know, her approach wasn't intellectual. She wasn't trying to, you know, get the best collection of cameos or the best collection of anything particularly. But, uh, you know, according to Francois Curiel at Christie's, the great jewellery guru, he said she knew a lot to appreciate her star pieces. So she had historic pieces, but then she had a lot of other stuff. So there wasn't a sort of big intellectual uh, motivation behind her collection. Not at all. And I, I think she was very, very Catholic in her taste, right? It was, it was very broad and very inclusive. And it wasn't all that, quote unquote, good, right? Some of it was not that good. Some of the more important pieces came as gifts from men in her life who, who were smart about investment and collecting. And I think that Richard Burton was one of those people. I mean, he bought her a lot of other things too, but a lot of the important things came from him. That incredible set of Cartier rubies that came from Mike Todd. And you know, what did Elizabeth do when she got them? She went swimming in the pool in the south of France, you know, to, oh, aren't I fabulous? I've got this great new set. I mean, I think she was like 26, 27 years old. It's extraordinary. Yes, as you said in her book, she said... Oh, I was just doing laps in the pool. And then I he put this diamond necklace on or I was just playing ping pong with Richard and he gave me a diamond. It's like, oh my God. She got showered with jewellery. And as you said, a lot from her husband's. And I think she said that jewellery was one of the three loves of her life. And as you've said, it Mike Todd number husband number three and Richard Burton, husband number five and six, were the main jewellery givers. I, I think that's right. I mean, And she also, though, did acquire quite a lot for herself. And, and I think the other thing that was, was sort of charming and nice about her was that, was that she also loved things that weren't inherently expensive. And, and, you know, later in her life, when she was spending quite a lot of time down in the Caribbean having some medical treatment, and she came back with lots and lots of these beads and kind of layered necklaces and, and really quite modest materials, but she was sort of layering them up in this crazy way to create this sort of look. And, and it sort of reminded me a little bit, I don't know if you've seen the photographs that Farouz Zahidi took of her when she was dating his uncle and they went on these trips in the Middle East and she was wearing a lot of sort of ethnic jewellery there that was kind of piled on and layered and crazy. So she had this sort of little bit of a stylus eye, right, to take quite modest things and sort of mash them up together in interesting ways. So I think, again, I've seen her take a lot of pleasure from gifts of costume jewellery that people have bought from her for her on the street because they thought it was funny or something like that. And she she loved that as much as she loved really quite important things. So it was it was it was really an inclusive kind of collection. And a lot of it was not that, you know, one of a kind or special, to be honest. So anything could fascinate her. Anything could fascinate her. And she she loved it and she mixed it together in a very interesting way. You know, that sort of a whole mashup of high low. That was quite unusual, I think, at the time. Tell us about some of the, the evenings you had with her when you were working um, and that she'd call you up to the bedroom. I, <laughs> there were a number of times when we had meetings in the bedroom and she spent quite a lot of time in bed. Quite a lot of time work was conducted in the bedroom. So once in a while, um, when I went there, particularly for Amphar meetings, she'd say, oh, well, we'll just have dinner upstairs and we'll go through everything. So she would be in bed. Well, in her nighty pyjamas. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and probably also in quite a lot of jewellery. And of course, the little dog Sugar in the, you know, in the middle of queen of everything she surveyed. And there was a parrot in the bedroom. A That's quite noisy to have in your bedroom. Uh, yes, yes. I think the parrot had been around a long time. There were a lot of animals in Elizabeth's life. Abyssinian cats. And I remember at that house, at that house in Beverly Hills, a lot of animals. But she had this very beautiful bedroom that the decorator, Waldo Fernandez, had done, done for her in these soft blues and patezi linings. But it was almost like her kind of theatre of operation. So anyway, we went up there and had dinner on a tray and I would be there with my clipboard saying this is the speech you're gonna you know give in Washington DC or whatever next week and we'd go through and we'd underline and she'd make her changes and all this and it was just sort of hilarious and I think it, it, she was a very accessible person I think she was extremely loyal to people who were close to her and that's an observation I see throughout her whole life, you know, that she had friends at the very close friends at the end of her life, Doris Brinner and Norma Heyman. You know, she had really, really old girlfriends that had been friends for years. 
So anyways, um, she was super accessible, super loyal. And I think also just very, very generous. You know, she would get out her jewelry when we were sort of hanging out, supposedly working and say, did you see this? Did you see that? Oh, did I tell you the story about this? And she was like a real person. She wasn't like this icon in private. She was real. She, you could really connect with her as a, as, as a human. And I mean, how did that happen? She was a child star from about the age of six. And she went through that very rigid studio system with under Louis B. Mayer. It's amazing that she came out sane. I, th- I think that's right. She grew up in a structure that was very constraining. You had to be, you know, on set at certain times. You had to do this, you had to do that. But I do think the whole, like, retreating to the bedroom and not feeling well, and she had obviously a long history of all kinds of, you know, medical issues, challenges, illnesses. I think that probably stemmed from that time, right? If you, ha- if you live a public life that's very, very controlled by much more powerful people who are paying your salary and basically supporting your family, how can you get away from them? The only thing you can do is say, I don't feel good and shut the bedroom door. So I think that, that, that probably that started at that time. It was her only kind of respite from the fame and the gaze and the attention and the control. And, you know, she was very, very famous when she was at her prime. But I suppose particularly when she married Richard Burton, It was the great romance of the 20th century. They were the most celebrated couple on the planet. And it was really the beginning of the jet set, wasn't it? And in a way, they fueled the celebrity obsession now that we live through. It was sort of the the, the Brad and Angelina of its day, but even bigger, if that's possible. And, and, And even when we used to go out for for you know AIDS events in the 80s and 90s and so on. I mean just the press of people that would be around and waiting for her in Cannes or you know waiting for her in Venice or or Florence and just the crush of all the paparazzi it was it was extraordinary. She was very very famous and just even you know walking through airports with her and seeing people's faces just people would just sort of stop when they saw her coming because she did have that sort of that special wattage of, of, of mega stardom. So when you played on the bed, <laughs> um, were there? And did you try on all the jewels, Sally? Was Did you have a favourite? I didn't try on all the jewels, but I saw a lot of her things and got to play with a lot of her things close up. I think I personally loved the old Bulgari Serpenti watches. And she had a number of them and they were all in the, you know, she had these kinds of like architect's drawers that were in her dressing room that pulled out and a lot of jewellery was inside it sort of laid out. I don't remember how many, but she had quite a few of them. I think they mostly came from Richard, you know. She met him in Rome filming Cleopatra. And said the best thing about it was the Bulgari store was there. Yes, she also, Richard said, um, when I met Elizabeth, I introduced her to beer and she introduced me to Bulgari. <laughs> and um, so so I think there was this whole thing in, in when they were in Rome of you know, him going shopping for a little Prezi for her because, you know, it was a nice day or he felt good, you know, for presents for no reason. So I think a lot, a lot of shopping happened. In, in, and I think Rome was a special place for her for her whole life because of that. But she did have these amazing 60s Serpenti watches that were so fab, so fab. And, and and I think probably I like those the best. Even more than all the big diamonds. And... Well, the big the big diamonds were spectacular, but you have to be a certain kind of person with a certain kind of life to be able to sort of incorporate those kind of pieces, right? They're, they're sort of larger than life pieces. So Mike Todd gave her the tiara, the vintage tiara, because she was his queen. Mm-hmm. And then there was a story that um, one day when they were in the Plus Vendôme and she liked some costume jewels, some earrings, chandeliers, and he bought them for her. And then one another day they were going out to dinner and she, she looked at them and said, there's something wrong with my earrings, they don't look the same. And he had had it all replaced by real diamonds. I heard that story. I never talked to her about that. I think it was the, was that the diamond Girondole earrings? Yeah, the ones? yes. Yeah, I, they, I mean, they were so, so, so beautiful. I mean, the most perfect chandeliers, the absolute best size. I mean, she looked fantastic in them. They were exceptional for sure. But that's quite a surprise, isn't it? Well, I think that, you know, if, if you're Elizabeth Taylor, special things happen to you, I guess. <laughs> it hasn't happened to me, right? 
And then you think that Richard Burton bought smartly. He was thinking also of investment, do you think? I do, I do. I think he thought very smart about financial planning for, like in the Melvin Bragg book, there, there, there are references to how he thought through about how his kids would, you know, be taken care of and this and that. So I think he was thinking longer term. And I think he also went after specific pieces sort of over time, right? He chased certain pieces that he really thought were important to have and, and researched them and stuff like that. She also said in her book that she had a ruby ring and she said, Richard told me he was going to get me the best ruby in the world. And it took him four years because they wanted ruby red for Wales, where he came from. And it took him four years. Yeah. And then he found this particular um, ruby that he bought. So I guess they were in it together in a way. You make it sound very much that they were, they both had this similar passion. I think they did. I think she knew a lot about stones. She knew a lot about diamonds. She knew about things of value. That didn't preclude her liking other things. But I think there was certainly an intentionality in the way he looked at collecting. And she was certainly involved in that. I mean, it must have been quite off-putting for her subsequent men in her life when they came to date her. It it could be quite uncomfortable that she was wearing all this jewellery from other men. What do you think? You were Who was around her when you knew her? When I I met her, when I met her at the very first time, um, she was dating George Hamilton. And I went to see her to prep her for an AIDS benefit in New York and went up to the Plaza Atene where she used to stay in the suite on the top floor. She was upstairs getting ready. George was downstairs and he was chatting with some of her team about what to get her for her birthday and this and that. And he was like, it's so overwhelming. I mean, when I look up at that dressing table, you know, she sees gifts and I see scalps. So I think it was very difficult to sort of follow those guys in her life, right? And what could you get her? It was also the same day that she came down those stairs at the Plaza Atene and suddenly this sort of string of ruby beads that um, she'd been wearing sort of cracked open and broke all over the floor, tumbling down the stairs. So we all then spent an hour looking around on the floor to try and pull up ruby beads that were all over the carpet. So it was a very surreal, but very sort of Elizabethan moment for me to be scrabbling around on the floor with a famous person looking for rubies. (laughs) She was quite sort of pushy in getting people to give her pieces, wasn't she? I mean, the stories in the book about Rex Harrison, apparently when they'd finished filming A Little Night Music, and apparently he was the stingiest man in Hollywood. And basically... She saw a very... It's actually one of the things in the cell I thought was so pretty. A little um, nephrite and rock crystal lily of the valley brooch. It's really charming. Not signed, antique. And she just obviously set her heart on it and she thought, who am I going to get to buy it for me? And she basically bullied Rex Harrison into it by saying she was about to get married to John Warner and he had to buy her a wedding gift that sounds like her that sounds like her um (laughs) I mean she was very charming and and very fun but she did love to be given things and and for goodness sake you know she was trained right to expect things because her whole life she'd had these extraordinary gifts from extraordinary people and Michael Jackson you said gave her quite a lot of gifts Michael Jackson I believe gave her this incredible um jeweled minaudier which was in the shape of an elephant she had given him an elephant as a present for his birthday. A real elephant. Yes, a real elephant for, for, for Neverland. She had given him an elephant. And I think he gave her in return this, this I, I remember this beautiful little jeweled evening purse, which was in, in, in the shape of an elephant. And I think came from a store in Las Vegas, because I think she came back from a trip to Las Vegas and proudly showed her new her new haul, <laughs> which was this jeweled elephant. So I think the best way to look at jewellery that we tried to on if jewels could talk is that all her jewels had a story, didn't they? And I guess looking at them, there was a backstory to each one and it was like a window into her life. I think that's exactly right. I, I, think, I think when you look into a woman's jewellery box, you really do see the story of their life. And she was exactly the same. It's just hers was on a larger, deeper, more extensive scale. And, and, and she, she remembered where all the pieces came from. She remembered the, the occasion on which they were given. She remembered what had been happening at the time. She talked about it. And, and for her, I think, 
getting out her pieces and, and, and sharing them with people and showing them and playing with them and all this was for her um, a way of like sort of re-experiencing the most extraordinary but the most personal moments in her life, the most intense emotional moments in her life. And I think that, that that's in that way, she's, she's sort of like a lot of us, right? That's how we look at jewelry. It's a kind of signpost of all the places we've been and the things we've done and our emotional landscape. And and again, I think that's why jewelry is special and it's it's not like other accessories. It's not like purses. It's not, you know, it's not like shoes. It's something that has that carries these emotional moments for us. And I guess um, the charm bracelets in particular. She had quite a few charm bracelets, didn't she? She had quite a few charm bracelets, and and at the sale um, of her estate, the first two items were very very big charm bracelets. And I think all of us went into that sale thinking, you know, maybe we can bid on one small thing. And we were looking at some of the small things, even on in on the online portion of the sale. So those first two charm bracelets, which were really chunky and substantial, but went, I think, for like 10 times their estimate. And that was the moment that we all knew. A, this was going to be a sort of crazy, crazy out of the box few days. But B, there is no way anybody like me is going to be able to afford anything because everything was going so wildly, wildly above estimate. And I suppose particularly those charm bracelets because, I mean, it was just literally her life. That had hung on her wrist. I think. I think so. I think it was every place she'd been, every every like fun dinner she'd had with somebody, whatever at birthdays. Um, they were all super, super personal for sure. But again, that that's that's you see. I think the nice thing about jewelry, right? Anybody can have that. They can't have her charm bracelet, but anyone can, in her words, start with something and start with a charm bracelet and and kind of chronicle their own life through their own small collection. And I think that's what sort of that's what's sort of great about jewellery. There are so many ways in for, for, for different people to participate. Did she clank when she wore them? Yes. She clanked even when she didn't wear them because if she wasn't wearing big charm bracelets, she was wearing stacks and stacks of something else. I mean, this, this is the other thing I think about Elizabeth. She was sort of the, the last blow against minimalism. Like, don't wear one, wear three. <laughs> you know, it was all, like, piled up and layered and, and over-the-top kind of thing. And it probably suited that era, too, didn't it, really? I think it suited that era, and I think it, it suited her personality. You know, she was not a kind of minimal, discreet, oh, I'll only wear beige person. She was she liked, like, scale and colour and... Flamboyant. Yeah. And that's such a joy, because, as you said, she enjoyed it. But also now, where we live in this age where everybody hides what they have and they just borrow it and give it back again. It, you know, it's an era that's gone, isn't it? I think, it's, I think it's an era that's gone to a large extent. I think that prominent people are increasingly investing in important stones, important diamonds, uh, large diamonds, coloured diamonds. Um, so I think that there are people that have serious collections. I think it's much more discreet. I think people today are a little less comfortable about showing what they have, but I think there are kind of two parallel worlds, right? There's this world where people wear things on the red carpet and borrow the dress and borrow the jewelry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's this sort of more private, discreet world where people, including very famous people, are actually investing long-term, particularly in big diamonds and, and other gemstones because they hold value. We're in a, this very volatile world and I think that kind of hard luxury is increasingly very, very attractive. So it's just that we don't get to see it in the way that Elizabeth Taylor showed it all. Yes, exactly. Shame. Yes. <laughs> I mean, she obviously loved the beauty and perfection, but she called it God's workmanship from the earth. She felt it almost had like a divine quality because it had come from the earth. Yes, I think, I think again very drawn to natural materials, loved, you know, for example, in Thailand, that soft, buttery, very high carat gold, loved Indian and Middle Eastern jewellery, her big stones, particularly, particularly the crop, she would sort of hold, it was like an anchor point for her, right? It was a connection to something sort of enduring and forever and all those things. And she would sort of touch it. And, and it, I think there was a kind of totemic quality for her about these extraordinary things that came from the earth and they were all individual they were all one of a kind it was something sort of super sort of personal it was a personal connection for her she also by the way collected you know crystals I mean there were big crystals and huge amethysts and things in the house and 
what you referred to as that sort of connection to materials was it was it was that was definitely a narrative thread through her life real things you know substantial things things that you could hold on to were you brave enough to give her any piece of jewelry yourself sally i gave her something i gave her a gold safety pin which i thought was funny i'd seen this gold safety pin in new york and i thought it was just so punk you know to to give her a gold safety pin. and i have no idea i have no idea how she used it what when she used it but you know, I wasn't afraid of giving her things because she was appreciative of things regardless of how expensive they were. I mean, obviously she liked big, fabulous things, but she was excited by costume jewellery. She was excited by, you know, very chunky, like cool things you'd find on the streets in Soho or something like that. So she liked a lot of everything. But I think that was the point. It was about volume. <laughs> Volume in carrots and husbands. Yes, and yes. Academy Awards. Yes, you could call yes, it greedy. Yes. You could call it greedy. You could call it greedy, yes. More, more, more is more, you know, <laughs> maximalism. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Sally, for sharing your reminiscences. Oh, you're most welcome. Now, we've talked about Elizabeth Taylor's jewellery and the fact that she had a few historic world-class pieces. So now I'm going to talk to Ward Landrigan, who at the time was a 25-year-old head of Sotheby's Jewelry in New York, who sold Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, the Krupp Diamond, the Taylor Burton Diamond, and the Peregrina Pearl. Thank you so much, Ward, for joining us again. It's nice to be back. Now, when you were um, only age 25, you were head of jewellery at Sotheby's in New York, and you formed a pretty close relationship with her, didn't you? And you went on these fantastical, you were part of Richard Burton's shopping sprees for <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, he wasn't so happy about it. But he'd, he's, <laughs> he'd say things like, thanks a bunch. You know, that was his comment. Thanks a bunch. Well, when you'd spent a million of his pounds or dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although I think it was more probably her pounds. Do you think so? Do you think she paid for her own jewels? Honestly, yes. Really? I don't think he had that kind of money. He made some big money, but she was the real star. Because she was... Um, quite rude about Eddie Fisher after that <laughs> divorce, saying that yeah. he'd lavished her with necklaces and bracelets, and then she got the bill later on. Yeah, well, that's because she dumped on him. But you're saying to me that basically she got the bill for Richard Burton's presence as well. No, I mean, the thing is, he only sent her the bill after she dumped him. He he was going to give her, that was about those big yellow diamond earrings that weren't that nice anyway. I mean, they were expensive, but, you know, Eddie Fisher wasn't known for his taste. And Richard didn't get to pick out this stuff anyway. I think it was it was all about Elizabeth, that she was, you know, saying, oh, I have to have this, I have to have that. And, you know, I, I was around them enough that I could hear her cajoling and saying how much she would love to have this or whatever it was that they were shopping for at the time. So he'd please her and go and get it. And fundamentally, it probably came out of their joint account. That's a nice way to say it, maybe. <laughs> Nicer way to say it, yeah. I don't uh -huh. know. I mean, it's wrong to say that he paid you or just she get paid. That feeling. Well, she had been a star for years and years. He was, you know, he was a Shakespearean actor. So, and she was the first star to hit a million dollars for a film, Cleopatra, yeah. Yeah, yeah, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah, yeah, and she, she was, she was charmed. She had a charmed life. So you had a particularly busy year when he bought the Krupp diamond and yes. the Pellegrino pearl. Was that in the same year? No, no, no. They were far, quite far apart. Uh, the Peregrina Pearl was for a Valentine's Day present. And uh, when he bought the Krupp, I think that was, I'm not sure that you'll have to check these years. I think it was 65 or 67. And they, the first thing was the Krupp. And that was the one where I was in the auction room, but I didn't know who bought it. They bought it through an agent. And then I took my staff out for a drink at a bar, local bar to, you know, celebrate a big sale. And we heard over the radio that it was Elizabeth who bought the diamond. And we're going, oh, you know, cheers. And within 10 minutes, somebody ran over from the office to tell me that she wanted to have it immediately. And I said, oh, well, well, okay, where is she? And they said, she's in London. You have to get on a plane right now. I literally didn't have time to go home and pack. I just went in my suit that I was wearing from the auction. What, with a diamond in your pocket? With a diamond in my pocket. And I, I showed up at the Dorchester Hotel and they escorted me up to their suite. And Richard answered the door in his bathrobe, looking, well, looking like early morning. And um, he said to me, where is it? 
just like that in his wonderful voice. And I said, it's in my pocket. And I reached into my pocket, handed it to him. He opened the box and looked at it. And he, he yelled over his shoulder, Elizabeth. And she came running out of the bedroom in her white terry cloth bathrobe. And he handed it to her. And she said, oh, shit, is what she said. <laughs> and she put it on her hand. And she looked at her hand and she said, look at my short, fat little fingers now. I knew right away that I'd never met her, but I knew right away then I liked her. Someone who's beautiful as she calling her hands short, fat little fingers. And then uh, he, she gave him a huge hug, which actually knocked the lamp off the table next to them. And it, and I had never met these people. And it, I felt sort of like I was intruding on a very personal moment. Anyway, so I stayed with them. I don't remember how many days, but I had to stay with the diamond. The insurance company had said, I cannot leave the diamond out of my sight. Well, needless to say, at night I did. But so did they give you breakfast when you arrived? Did they say, come in and have breakfast? Well, I'm sure they did. I don't remember that, but I am sure I had breakfast, or I probably had breakfast on the plane. I'd never met a movie star, and I was a kid, basically, and I, I was in awe. It must have been very intimidating to see that face, those eyes, and actually have her sort of semi-naked in front of you, and that, her dressing gown. <laughs> yeah. Well, she was, she was actually very, very friendly, I mean, it's hard to say, but, you know, she was the kind of person that put you at ease right away. He was not. Uh, he was the opposite, you know, uh, alpha male and all that. And he had this most amazing voice. I mean, they were very, he was polite and she was she was welcoming and friendly and made me feel as much at home as I could be uh, under the circumstances. And so you hung out for a couple of days with them in the day. Yes. Well, they were making a movie called Where Eagles Dare. And I had to go on the set with them, you know, and she would. You know, she was showing everybody the diamond. In the morning, we'd meet at a trailer, and the movie would would be uh, Clint Eastwood, Martin Balsam, Richard. They were in the movie. Elizabeth was there watching with me. And um, they'd rehearse their lines in the morning, and then we'd go on the set to make the film. And Clint had it. He was he was recently married. He had a deal where if his wife had their child while the movie was on, he could come home right away. And we were sitting on the sidelines while they were filming one of the really good scenes in the film where Burton and, and Balsam and Eastwood are dressed as Nazi officers, or German officers, because they'd supposedly killed some Germans and they'd stolen a bus and they were shooting out the bus windows and machine guns. And the scene had gone on. It was like the fourth or fifth take. It was very complicated. And someone came in, or a Western Union man came in with a telegram and handed it to Elizabeth. And she ran screaming onto the bus, Clint, you're a daddy, you're a daddy, you're a daddy. And of course, the the the, the uh, director went ballistic. It stopped the scene. Clint put down his machine gun and took off. <laughs> Elizabeth said, well, I guess we're going to lunch. And we, we all piled into the Rolls Royces and went off to a restaurant in their German gear. You know, and we, just as we arrived, there was this, a big bus full of American schoolgirls arriving at the restaurant. And it, it caused quite a riot because they'd been in the papers a lot about the uh, about the diamond, I guess. Anyway, so Elizabeth told the restaurant manager that she, she could send the girls in two by two and she would sign a postcard or whatever. And she did. For, she let all the girls try on the diamond. That's amazing. And uh, she was amazing. She was amazing. Um, anyway, it was everything about them was amazing. And then his brothers gave him a party in Bristol at a beer hall to celebrate the diamond, I guess. And it was a sort of a musty, dusty place with sawdust on the floor. We drove down again. I hadn't had, you know, we were in these Rolls Royces to Bristol. And the party, they sat Elizabeth in a chair in the middle of the sawdust covered floor. And everybody, you know, went around her and talked, and, and she let everybody, all the women, try on the diamond. It was it, it, not, it was not a quiet moment in the time we were there, I promise you. And then, oh, she, while I was in the hotel, we'd just hang around, and she said one time, one day, she said, "You really need a haircut." Well, I, I did, and she said, "I have." haircutting equipment. So she goes off and gets it and starts cutting my hair. And Burton came in and she said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm cutting his hair. He said, he said to me, get out and get a proper haircut. <laughs> so I left with half my haircut. And <laughs> so he was jealous. He was. He, yeah. He invited me out drinking at night and she said, don't go. 
<laughs> she said, you'll be, she said, don't go, you'll be sorry. So, I mean, and she was the boss as far as I was concerned. Plus I had to sit with the diamond anyway. We weren't going drinking with a diamond. You know, you might not have lived to tell the tale. I mean, you would have been drunk with, <laughs> but he would have drunk you under the table, board. I suppose, yeah, well, I don't know. I was pretty good then myself. You know, Landrigan's an Irish name, remember that. He's Welsh, but I'm okay. Irish. Okay, so. you could have held your own in, I th- I think in that so. case. He, he, was, he was a character. They were both characters, but I really liked her. So were you nervous when she allowed people to try the diamond on, given that you were waiting for it to be insured? At first, but I, I mean, you realise you were in the circumstance, they, they always had bodyguards. I mean, it was, no, there was nobody's going to run, run and, you know, grab it and run off. They wouldn't get very far. No, you, you felt safe. I mean, it was... It was, it was a circus atmosphere wherever they went. I mean, when you came out the door of the Dorchester, there was always a crowd there with cameras and press. I mean, I'd never been around anything like that. It was real paparazzi stuff. So this was, I mean, the crop was 33.19 carats. Yeah. Now, they think it was a Golconda diamond, don't they? An Indian Golconda, the best? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, they, they didn't do the tests then, but it, I mean, it was unbelievably beautiful. I mean, it really was. The highest colour. Yeah. It was deep flawless and all that. Do you think, in fact, it was more beautiful than the one they went on to buy, the Taylor Burton 69.42 carat? For my personal diamond? taste, Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the way it was cut. It was a truly elegant stone. You know, it had well, it belonged to Vera Krupp. I think actually when they got it, it weighed a little less. It had been stolen from Vera and ended up in New York. And they were on, it was on the cutting wheel when they found it. It was being recut to show that it wasn't the same diamond. That's how they tested it. You know, well, it isn't 33.9. It's, you know, 31.6 or whatever. Can't be the same stone. Well, that's how the thieves worked it out. But no one ever went to jail. No one got caught. Somebody had to be paid off. It must have been a, you know, a big time mob deal or something. I don't know. I mean, he paid what, $300,000 for it? Yeah, about 300. It was 315,000, I think. And then at the sale after her death. It brought eight and a half million, I think. Eight and a half million. It's just unbelievable. And it's with a South Korean conglomerate. Not quite so romantic, is it? Yeah. No, not at all. No. (laughs) But that's a couple of the big stones that I sold over the years were bought like that because, you know, people bought them for investment. So did you make a friendship with them after that experience? I wouldn't call it a friendship. I mean, it was a relationship. The next thing that came up was the one that you mentioned, the Taylor Burton diamond. Judith, my wife and I had been sent down to run the auction house, a satellite auction house. It wasn't actually an auction house, a satellite auction office in Houston, Texas. And we were sitting in the office one day and Judith answered the phone and she she said, Ward, it's Elizabeth for you. And it was Elizabeth. We had uh, been promoting a stone that weighed 69 carats, a big uh, pear shape, um, that we had nicknamed the no-name diamond. We came up with the name because we figured somebody would want to name it after themselves. Um, obviously, that had appealed to Elizabeth. She, you know, she was very charming, and she said, I'd love to see this stone. I'd say, okay, where are you? She said, well, right now I'm in London, but I'm going to Stad, and I'd like it if you could bring the stone to me, but if you'd stop in London and do an appraisal for me, I said, what needs appraising? She said, all my jewelry. Oh, my God. Uh, so I, st- I stopped in London and went to the bank. And, you know, there's a lot of jewelry. I did the appraisal. And then I flew to Switzerland. Then they had this lovely uh, chalet in Stad. Uh, and it was beautiful. It was very picturesque with snow and all that. And uh, she was very... I, well, I remember walking in. She gave me a huge hug and kiss. And it was just so nice to be hugged by Elizabeth. And, and her eyes... You're right. They're, those eyes were quite something. I mean, they were violet, and and she, uh, but she was she was emoted. And by that time, I felt like all well, I knew them is the second time I'd been around them. They made me feel welcome, and you know, we had a dinner. It was a small group. It was a, a, an actor named Emmeline Williams, Englishman, who was a friend of Burton's, and Burton and Elizabeth and me. Anyway, the dinner conversation was lively and a lot about jewelry, of course. Again, it was the same thing. I mean, how can you not be impressed by those circumstances? You know, I, again, I was. A, kid from New Jersey. who was, Living the high life. Yeah, exactly. I thought, <laughs> I thought, wow, this is incredible. And Elizabeth, actually, she was funny. I remember it quite well because she was wearing a red Halston dress. And it was just something about how plain it was on her. And it just looked great. And then after dinner, they liked to play ping pong. And there was Elizabeth was actually quite good at ping pong. So we went down into the 
lower end of the chalet to play ping pong. And when she came down, she had on a green dress. And I, I said, why did you change? You look so great. She said, I had my maid wrap the dress up for your wife because I, I saw that you'd, <laughs> you'd admired it. I thought, oh, my God. What a lovely gesture. Yeah, she was like that. She was very, very generous. And she actually, didn't she have a diamond she called the ping pong diamond that she'd won off Richard Burton yes, when she yes. beat him at ping pong? Yeah, well, she, he wasn't very good and she was. So <laughs> anyway, she loved her jewelry. She just loved her jewelry. Did you stay with them in the shower? Oh, yeah. And I was in charge of the Burton Krupp diamond, the 69 carat diamond, which when it came up for auction was the first single lot of auction jewelry they brought over a million dollars. I was responsible. Of course, that was in my pocket, too. And it came on a big diamond necklace. And we had many, many cocktails at the ping pong table. And I took the diamond to bed that night, but I forgot the necklace. And in the morning when I woke up with a hangover, I thought, oh, hell, where's the necklace? It was down on the ping pong table in the basement. Anyway, it was never a dull moment with them. So they looked at the Taylor Burton diamond. They loved it, but they, they didn't get it at auction, did they? No, Cartier bought it. And they really bought it for publicity because I knew the people that were running the jewelry firm then. They wanted the publicity of buying this incredibly big diamond. Well, it was huge. It was, it was really big. It was 70 carats. It's huge. Uh, well, Richard called me right away. He was on the phone and he said, what did we pay for it? And I said, you didn't get it. And he said, well, Elizabeth wants it. I said, <laughs> you know, I said, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's been sold. He said, see if you can get it. And they were still in the, in the building, the, uh, the Cartier people. So I went up to them and I said, uh, the Burtons want the stone. They were bidding against you. They said, well, let's talk about it. So I put them in one room. And then there was an agent for Elizabeth there who had been bidding on the on the diamond. I put them in another room and it was sort of like a Henry Kissinger negotiation. Basically, it became clear that Cartier wanted the stone for publicity and they very cleverly figured out that if they sold it, even for a relatively small profit, they would get tremendous publicity because of the Burtons. So we, we what we agreed to is they paid they only paid an additional fifty thousand dollars for the stone. Which is sort of peanuts. Well, compared to the million dollars, yeah, it was peanuts. And the deal was that they got to keep the diamond for I don't know, it was like six months. They showed it all over the country with the publicity that the Burtons had bought it from them after the auction. Then it, they were calling it the Taylor Burton diamond. But the agreement was that ultimately it would be called the Cartier diamond. I mean, who cared? But it was all about publicity. Cartier got a billion dollars worth of publicity out of it. It was incredible. I mean, it was it was in all the newspapers, on all the news feeds. I remember that, that afternoon I was holding it for the press and my hands were shaking because it was one of those very exciting moments. And, and the, the, the cameraman said, oh, look at the diamond sparkle. I said, well, yeah, it's sparkling because my hand's shaking. That's what, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, you know, when he said to you, well, Elizabeth wants it, Elizabeth sort of got used to getting what she wanted. And then she set her sights on the Peregrina Pearl, didn't she, which was owned previously by four centuries of European royals. It had the most amazing history. The King of Spain, when he got engaged to Mary Tudor. He, he sent her the pearl as an engagement present. After she died, it went back to the Spanish crown and then Napoleon, everybody had it over the history. It was just, it was the, it was the biggest, best pearl in the world. So that was its history. And everybody wanted to see it and touch it. And, and the King of Spain would wear it there's a wonderful, uh, I think it's a Velasquez portrait of him on a horse. It's it's pinned to his hat, and then he's, you know, the horse is rearing up. It's in the Prado, I think. Anyway, there, it was unbelievably historic. And then it ended up in, in an English family bought it. The Abercorns. Abercorns yes. bought it. And, uh, and they consigned it to me to sell. And uh, he bought, Richard bought it as a Valentine's present for Elizabeth. And it didn't bring that much money. It brought, I think, $33,000. Why didn't that bring so much as the big diamonds? With that incredible history of, it's been painted by every Goya, Velasquez, the, um, the um, Tudor artists, and uh, been owned by a succession of royalty. Why didn't that get so much? Yeah, I, don't, I have no idea. That's the thing about auction, you just don't know. And there had been a lot of publicity because the deposed royals, the Spanish royals, had sent me a, like an eight-page telegram, C.C. J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, that the stone was, that the pearl was really theirs. And that made the front page of the New York 
poster time. Anyway, it was it was plastered all over the place, the history of it. And, and still it didn't. I, I just people I think at that time, people didn't realize how rare it was. I mean, it was one of the rarest gems in the world. So what that so the King Juan Carlos was trying to lay claim to it? Well, someone was. I mean, I think it was probably him. I, I, all I remember is getting this telegram saying that we couldn't sell it. And, you know, of course, we sent it to our lawyers and they said, that's poppycock, that's nonsense, you can sell it. But it still made the newspapers because they'd sent a copy to J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI. And, and it was the whole thing was a you know, typical Burton event. Anyway, so uh, it wasn't it wasn't stolen from the Spanish royal no, family, no, no, was it? No, they, they were, sold it. Yeah, yeah, they sold it to Abercorn, and Abercorn had all the proper documents. And oh everything. no, actually, maybe it was when Napoleon captured Spain. That's right. Maybe he fled they... with it. He ran off with it. Mm. So maybe that's why. Yeah. From that yeah. moment. Yeah, he took it back to to France. Uh, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Because he was the he was Napoleon's brother. He was the alcoholic brother. He was the, yeah. whatever he was, king of Spain. So Joseph Bonaparte took yes. it back to Paris yes. and gave it to Hortense de Bonharé, the yeah. um, daughter <laughs> of Empress Josephine. Yes, so that's right. So maybe, I mean, it's literally like no royal family hadn't owned this. That's right. And, they all, and it was painted. And, and, the, and there's, you know, uh, well, there's uh, jumping ahead, you know, there's a wonderful portrait in the National Portrait Gallery of... Mary Tudor wearing it, and it's they have they have almost no Elizabethan portraits, and 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 the the funny thing about that portrait is my wife found it, called Burton, he bought it, and gave it to the National Portrait Gallery, which I thought was a really nice touch. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so they, he's got that fair and square. He's got it straight off from the auction, and then where do you have to take that? Well, it was Valentine's Day. They called me and said, we'd like the pearl. I said, okay, where are you now? They said, we're staying at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas because they were making a film. And, you know, could I bring it? So again, in, into my pocket it went. I, I had to get there, you know, right away. And, and my plane got in really late. It was like midnight or one in the morning. And uh, Caesar's Palace sent a white Rolls Royce. At least I, that was the continuity. It was always a Rolls Royce. Uh, I, my, I had my Rolls ride to Caesar's Palace. And they had a party going on. They were staying in the bridal suite of the Caesar's Palace, which was the size of two tennis courts. It was huge. I came in and Richard, by that time, we knew each other pretty well. And he said, what do you have to drink? I said, well, I'll have what you're having. And he said, uh, we're having salty dogs. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> anyway, so I had my vodka and clam juice and I was sitting on this and Elizabeth took the, it was on a little chain and she put it around her neck and she was running around showing all her friends. And then about, I don't know, 10 minutes later, she came running over to me and saying, Ward, Ward, I've lost the pearl. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. And the, the floor was covered in, in shag carpet. It was about two inches thick. It was pink, sort of the color of Pepto-Bismol. And I thought, oh, no. So everybody's down on their hands and knees crawling around. <laughs> this is one in the morning. And... Uh, I crawled past a little settee on the side and I could hear this crunching sound underneath and it was one of her dogs. It was, a, I think it was a Lhasa Apso. Anyway, it was eating the pearl and I, I, I reached my hand under and the dog growled at me and I said, Elizabeth, I think your pearl's here. And she went and got the pearl and it had little tiny teeth marks in it. And I thought, oh God, 500 years of history and <laughs> she's had it 15 minutes and it's got dents in it. But, you know, that's... <laughs> That's, just, that's that's Elizabeth. And what happened? Did the did the tooth marks stay in the pearl? No, we had it skinned. We took it to New York and had it had it peeled. Okay, it's pristine now. And then that brought a huge price, uh, eleven million, I think, at auction when it sold, and from thirty three thousand. So it was. And do you think that Richard Burton gave her the the best of her jewels? Well, they were certainly the most important jewels. Well, I saw them all, I guess, because I did go to the auction afterwards. I mean, that night, uh, I went in and just looked at the jewelry. Um, oh, it was funny. Christie's had the jewelry, and they wouldn't let me tell the story about the dog. <laughs> they, they, they didn't. They didn't, want... <laughs> they didn't want people to think it had been damaged. No, no. They said you can't tell that story. Well, that's part so of think, its history now. I know. Well, now, yeah, I think it, you know, somebody said, but it had. It was a dog. I said, yeah, but it was Elizabeth Taylor's dog. There's a difference, you know. Everything that she touched was became special. Mike Todd had given her some very nice jewelry from Bulgari. Mm -hmm. I mean, he he had actually. I think Mike went out 
uh, and bought the things that he thought she would like and surprised her with them. I think he was the one that actually bought her jewelry. I think Elizabeth later on in life, you know, in a sense, picked out what she wanted. And, you know, I can't say she bought it herself. I don't know. But um, that was my surmise. But Mike Todd actually paid for it. He he gave her a tiara as well, didn't yeah. he, that she wore to the Oscars? Yeah, he gave her a tiara. He gave her some very nice ruby uh, necklace and earrings and things. You no, know, we talked and when we were sitting there on the side waiting for this movie to be made back in England at Silverstone Studios, we talked a lot and I asked her what her favorite movie was and she said her favorite movie was Virginia Woolf because she could, she could be herself, which I thought was hilarious. Um, she said that she said that Mike was the true love of her life. I mean, she was at that point married to Burton. And she said, I wouldn't have left him. And, you know, he died in a plane crash. But I think Mike, you know, Mike made her feel, she was much younger. He made her feel special. Uh, he was romantic. It was interesting, some of the things she said. Did she ever tell you what it was about jewelry that she loved so much? That's a really good question. I, I think that line that she said, look at my short, fat little fingers now, sort of says it all. What made her feel beautiful. Yeah. And when you see the picture, there's a couple of pictures. I mean, I can say I have them. I just, there's the one of her in a sort of, it's a blue, very low cut dress with the Taylor Burton diamond hanging in her cleavage. I mean, uh, wow. It's not only about the diamond. It's about Elizabeth wearing the diamond. The Taylor Burton stone, she, that I think was her favorite piece of jewelry, by the way. Because even when she was sick in the hospital and she, you know, she had terrible health problems, she had that diamond on. She, she didn't want to part with it. But I also think it was probably the it was the first great jewel she owned. I mean, it was really it was world class. The rest of her stuff was interesting, but not world class. And the three things that she got with Burton, the crop, the uh, Taylor Burton and the Peregriner were all world class. And, and she was world class. I mean, she was, you know, I, I mean, you're looking back. She was if you name the great stars of the. 50s and 60s, whatever. I mean, she's she's right up there. And she had a personality to go with it, you know, and a very, you know, busy life and tragedies. And, you know, she was a she was a heroic figure of our age mm. and, a, and a really nice person. That's amazing. I mean, no actress now would amass such a collection. No. Well, no one has that kind of money. They don't have that kind of money and they want it for free. They don't want to pay, yes, do they? Yes. Everything's, <laughs> cha everything's changed. Everything's mm. changed. And her sense of glamour. There was something about her. I can't explain it. She knew how to do it. And she did it for a long time. She was a child star. And yeah, she was 14 when she became famous. And she was a star her whole life. And maybe the jewels were a bit... Because obviously there are compromises to be made in that kind of childhood and that kind of hard work that you have to do quite young. So maybe these were like her compensation prizes to herself um, for... The life she'd had, yeah, and for some of the hard work and the disappointments that she must have had. Oh, she did. Have, yeah, she did. She had, in a way, a, a very tragic life. I mean, you know, I mean, she was. She adored her kids. I mean, they would, you know, even when we were staying at the Dorchester, her kids by Michael Wilding and another a daughter by Mike Todd, they were always coming in out of the apartment and you know wanting something or you know, and she was a very, very good mother. Mm -hmm. I mean, considering she was a real stage mother, but uh, she was bigger than life. She was bigger than life. And did Richard Burton like the jewels as much, or he did it to please her? He pretended he didn't. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I his role with me was, you know, he's the alpha male, and he was, like I said, his 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 line to me was, "Thanks a bunch." <laughs> was <laughs> when I'd bring one of these things to him. He 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 played the role of being sort of slightly bored with it all. Uh, you know, he was the he was the husband who was putting up with <laughs> Elizabeth. And then, did you sell her anything else after that? No, no, that was no. it. Well, thank you so much, Ward, for sharing it with us and <laughs> and you know stretching back and and giving us your memories. Thank you. Yeah, I hope I hope they're accurate after all those years. Well, I'm sure they are. You were not going to forget that. You're not going to forget. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, actually, it's funny. I still have dreams about her. Do you? Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it's always a jewelry-related dream, but you know, there's. Uh, I, I did have a dream not that long ago uh, of being in Los Angeles because I lived there for three years, and something to do with selling one of the diamonds for her to somebody else. This woman who just had lots of money, and I, I just, it's it just. But she was there, and and I thought, oh, isn't it nice to see her again, type thing. I mean, you know, she was. 
I, I always had a good time, you know, because they made sure I did. And, you know, it certainly wasn't the way I was living, you know, in my <laughs> in my, my flat in New York uh, at that time. Well, you know. that shows how special it was that you keep dreaming about it. Yeah, it is. Anyway, thank you. Well, thank you, Ward. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com slash podcasts. Do share it any way you can. And we'd love to have a rating and a comment. So thank you. For more information about our sponsors, that's fooliegemstones.com. Join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. And we want to hear from you as to what the subject will be. Please get hold of me, direct message me at Carol Walton on Instagram, leave a message on, on the website, because we want to know what you'd like to hear about. Anything to do with jewellery, me, any of the guests that we've had over the last five seasons, any questions you'd like to ask, really, and um, I'll be answering them in two weeks. So join me then, and thank you for listening. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda. You can find our sponsors at fullygemstones.com and me at carolwilton.com. <laughs>